Welcome to the Northeast School of Paediatrics Journal Club. My name's Dr. Andy Mellon. I'm a consultant paediatrician in Sunderland and head of School of Paediatrics in the Northeast of England. This journal club has arisen as partly a response to the present coronavirus crisis, which has impacted hugely on our training programme. We wanted to do something that was slightly different from what we've previously done. We felt a journal club would be an important part of our future strategy within the school. We realise how important it is for trainees to be well versed in reading the medical literature. One simple way of putting this across is there's never been a better time to think about starting a journal club. I just want to welcome everybody and thank you very much for joining us. This is a trial for the School of Paediatrics for a journal club and I particularly want to thank Hugo and, and Ina who've been very helpful. Hugo offer really put the idea into my mind about this because he started up a journal club with us in Sunderland when he was with us recently and it just seemed from bits and pieces I've been doing in the undergraduate field that it was time for us to try and get some something going again around the teaching program and there was a very positive response from lots of people at the idea of a journal club. Hugo's going to talk in a moment and then hopefully people have had a chance to look at the paper that we sent round. I just wanted to talk very briefly about the, the ethos of this. A journal club from my perspective and most people's perspective when they think about it carefully is it's, it's not just about trying to fill people with knowledge, it's about trying to help people to understand and think differently about evidence. And it struck me that during this present crisis the evidence seems to be finally getting its day. I think the press are getting there, beginning to understand that evidence isn't opinion. It isn't just thought processes, it's about a very strict way of going about looking at things. And we want to see this as, as a development of your critical appraisal skills as trainees. Hopefully it will be of interest to people beyond trainees. I know quite a number of consultants have expressed interest. We will find ways to make it work. Please contribute questions as we go along in the chat function and Ina's going to keep an eye on those. At an appropriate point, probably after we've finished looking at the paper, we'll then pick out any key questions that have come through. I have put some slides together which pick up some of the particular points in today's paper around the statistics. I am not an expert. I'm not trying to pretend to be. And I think it's about collaborative learning here as much as anything. So I'm going to hand over to Hugo just to do a quick introduction to critical appraisal and then we'll start looking at the paper and we'll take it from there. So over to you, Hugo. Thank you for that intro, Andy. So um, for those of you who haven't heard me before, um, my name's Hugo. As Andy said, I'm a trainee currently with a paediatric oncology team at the RVI and also an academic trainee with the Wilson Childhood Cancer Treatment Centre. And so I thought that before we discuss today's paper, we have a light aperitif and talking about what exactly the concept of critical appraisal is and what the process involves and why is it important for us to know about it and why should we even bother in the first place. Um, so next slide, please. 
So when I think of critical appraisal, um, I like to think of it as the process of filtering out all the unwanted background noise when it comes to medical literature and trying to ensure that any research that I'm looking at has met five key targets. And that is ensuring that it is valid to the study population that I'm interested in and that it is relevant to my daily clinical practice, that it is based in evidence and that is sound, using sound scientific principles. Um, and finally, that it is up to date um, with what is going on in the current environment. And next slide, please. So I think now more so than ever, we can all agree that critically appraising medical evidence is important, if not extremely important. Most of us are relying on all the information that we're getting from either the news or social media, where all the medical output at the moment due to the pandemic um, has been distilled down into bite-sized attention-grabbing headlines by non-medical experts. And this is what the general public is relying on um, to tell them about what is going on and what needs to be done. And we know that in such situations, it can become dangerous. Just as we learned a few weeks ago, due to the remarks made by Trump about the ingestion and injection of disinfectants for treating coronavirus. So this makes it extremely important that we, are, we as clinicians who are expected to be experts in the medical field are able to understand how to process all the information that's coming out and sift through it to make sure that at the end of the day, we are practicing what is evidence-based at next slide. So this begs the question, how exactly do we filter out the noise? And um, I think at least uh, what I'm aware of is that quite a few of us are anxious when it comes to critical appraisal because we're not used to the processes that are involved and it can sometimes feel a bit daunting. What I'm going to do in the next few slides is just break it down into simple points that I follow whenever I'm thinking about looking at a particular clinical question and the research that's out there. So I think the first step is making sure that you're asking the right question. I like to use the PICO acronym, which is looking at your study patients that you're in, interested in, your interventional measures that are being applied, what you're comparing it to, and your outcome measures. And I think once you've been able to set that clinical question, you can then move on to the next step, and um, next slide, which is about looking in the right places where you can find the necessary evidence. And so there are lots of research databases available where all the research papers have been indexed, have your PubMed, which I think we're all aware of, and things like Embase and Scopus, and for your systematic reviews, you have your Cochrane as well. So after you've been able to identify where you can find the right information, the next step would be to look for the appropriate evidence 
that can answer your clinical question. When it comes to this, we have to look at the pyramid of the level of evidence that's available. We know that at the very peak, we have our meta-analysis and systematic reviews which is the strongest level of evidence that's available out there. The next step would be randomized controlled trials. And then as you gradually step down at the very bottom of the pyramid, you have your experts' opinions and anecdotal evidence. And as you see, as you go down the pyramid, you're introducing more confounding factors and leading to increased bias and just needing to be careful when you're appraising these articles that you're being cautious and trying to identify um, any areas that may have introduced confounding factors. Excellent. So uh, once you've been able to develop your clinical question and determine what evidence is out there, you now have to look at what exactly your clinical question is about. Are you interested in a therapeutic benefit of a certain medication, in which case what you should be focusing on is trying to look at randomized controlled trials and um, systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Are you looking at the etiology of a particular disease? In that case, your RCTs and meta-analysis will still be the key papers that you need to be looking at, although alternatively, if that isn't available, you can use your case control studies and case series. And then you just work your way through depending on what the overarching theme of your clinical question is um, and target the particular paper. Next slide. And I think once you've identified the paper you're interested in, then there are key questions that you need to be asking as you read through the paper. I think foremost, you need to know who the authors are. Are they reputable? What are their affiliations? Is there any obvious conflict of interest? You sometimes find that funding for these papers or to these authors is coming from pharmaceutical companies that may have some level of interest in making sure that there's a positive outcome identified from any therapeutic agents or devices that are being used. Then you need to look at the study design itself. How have the authors designed the study in such a way that they can reach the appropriate study conclusion? Where has this article been published and what is the impact factor of the journal? that it's been published in. Um, you tend to find that the higher impact journals may have more concise, authoritative papers, although this isn't always the case, as you probably will find when we move on to um, paper for today. And then you need to look at when exactly this paper was published. Is it within the past five years? Is it 10 years old? All those things come into play when you're looking at the underlying clinical question that you want to answer. And then going through each um, section of the paper step by step, what is the outcome that was measured? Are you looking at survival outcome, mortality, disease remission? things like that. Were reliable statistical methods used to answer this question? What was the effect size that was noted by the study? Does this actually have any actual implication for your current clinical practice? And finally, you want to know, are the findings of the study representable to your patient cohort? Is there evidence that, um, of external validity? you're able to apply this to the general population 
Next slide. There are lots of critical appraisal tools that are out there. I think everyone should probably have got the CEBM appraisal tool for RCTs, which is what we'll be using today. You also have this CAST tool, which is your critical appraisal skills kit program, and things like stroke statement, which is used for your observational studies like your cohort case control studies. So I think in a nutshell, this is just trying to highlight that a critical appraisal is an easy and straightforward process that just needs to be taken in steps to make sure that you've identified the right clinical question that you want to answer, what level of evidence is available for you to answer that question. And once you've been able to identify the right papers, ensuring that the information that is provided to you is of a high um, level uh, and is a high standard and is also coming from a reputable source. So I hope that with going through today's paper, we'll be able to take those steps and, and then use this as a, a foundation to build a, building up on future journal club. So um, back to you, Andy. I think that's been really helpful to set the scene for what we want this to be. So we're going to go on. I offered myself as the volunteer to look at this paper and Hugo's going to go through the CAT tool in a way replicating what we'll hopefully do in these in the future. We'll break down the paper in a bit more detail, but I think he's picked up a few things. One thing I didn't talk about in my overview was the journal itself. Now this is the Lancet, which obviously comes with a lot of credibility. I don't know its impact factor. It's obviously a high impact paper just the whole scale of this of it you know being started in January and finished in March published in April is absolutely astonishing for something of this size we chose a paper well I chose a paper that was interesting to me but I think seemed very topical and I think it illustrates a lot about what's good in research and what has amazingly changed in the last few weeks. So the paper was the paper hopefully that you've all had a chance to look at, which is a paper on remdesivir in adults, so not paediatrics, with severe COVID-19. And that was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multi-centered trial. One of the things about looking at a paper is always looking at the title because that should give you enough information to say, is it worth your while investing more time in reading this? or at least going to the next level. And instantly this did for me for a number of reasons. It was about a drug that was topical. I've been listening into a virology podcast called TWIV, which anybody else can look up afterwards. And they were talking about this. I thought, I need to know more about it. It's an antiviral agent. It's about patients with severe COVID-19. I'm at an age where I'm interested anyway. I think everybody's got a personal interest as well as a medical interest in, in COVID-19 at the moment. And those key things at the end, it was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial. So it's hitting all the right buttons in terms of the sort of study that you would want to look at for evidence. In terms of the authors and affiliations, you need to be careful that you don't make prejudgments. But this authorship was from Hubei province in China, from the center of the start of the pandemic. So that was instantly felt to me like it was likely to be from a population with the genuine article. So it wasn't coming from a small backwater where we haven't heard much about the disease. Then in terms of looking at the abstract, that led through a few things. So looking at the abstract, again, it confirms the nature of the study. It's randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in 10 hospitals in China. 
talks about the eligibility that it was adults over 18 all of whom were admitted with laboratory confirmed COVID-19 infect well SARS-CoV-2 infection and with an interval from symptoms of onset of 12 days or less and I think that'll be interesting for us to think about as we get to the end of the paper from some of the conclusions to make and also some of the new understanding that's coming through rapidly about about the phases of uh, COVID infection. They indicated patients who definitely had evidence of more than minor illness. They were all patients who were requiring oxygen or had evidence of hypoxia. They talked about, even in the abstract, they talked about the randomization, and we'll pick up on that a little bit later. So they were very specific about the nature of the randomization early in the abstract, which is good. And it was very clear what the comparison was, was made against. Question in my mind as I read the abstract was about other drugs that were being used at the time. And then they were very specific about their primary endpoints, which I think is really important in a study. Sometimes you'll look at an abstract and really get no indication of what exactly the endpoint was, whereas they were very clear about time to clinical improvement up to day 28. And they were using what they called an ordinal scale of clinical status, which they then go on to outline further in the paper. And wanting to know about change in, in, in those levels or discharge alive from hospital. And again, important to look at, they, they plan to do this on an intention to treat basis. If you follow a randomization process appropriately, hopefully you should include all the patients you intended to analyze when it comes to your analysis at the end. And they were fairly clear in their findings at the end of the abstract. And from their point of view, I'm sure it's very disappointing that they had to acknowledge that they didn't demonstrate a statistically significant difference, but they pointed to a few changes arising in that. And we can certainly think about that in relation to reading an article of, of this type. In the end, their conclusion had to be that they could not see a clinical benefit for remdesivir. As people often do, they point to a conclusion they were coming to, which wasn't part of their primary endpoint of certain features, perhaps suggesting there may be an effect, but that the primary outcome was was not demonstrated. So over to you, Hugo. If everyone has a CDBM um, appraisal tool available, we'll use that as a format for breaking the paper down and going through its strengths and limitations. And so I think at the very get-go, the questions we have to ask based on the PICO acronym is what was the study question that they were trying to answer? And so we know that they looked at patients older than 18 years and who were admitted with severe COVID-19 infection and trying to determine if using remdesivir compared to placebo um, would reduce time to clinical improvement as a primary outcome. So if we go through the first question, was the assignment of patients to treatments randomized? Do we think that this was an appropriate randomization procedure for this particular type of study? 
They describe what they call a permuted block randomization method. And I have to be honest, I had to go and look that up and clarify. So essentially that means groups of 30 patients at a time were included in the study and they were randomized to treatment or control within each of those equal sized blocks. And that is an accepted method for doing this. I've referenced that in some slides that we'll provide afterwards. The randomization happened after exclusion criteria were applied. Then they used a power calculation to estimate how many patients they would need to recruit. I can see Mike Lee's asking a question and Laura Stoddart, which is a question I haven't been able to answer but they used a two-to-one randomization of active drug to placebo, and I couldn't see that explained in the main paper. There is a subsidiary appendix of their whole protocol, which I haven't had a chance to go and look at. I don't know whether it was because they were concerned about using a drug that they felt may benefit more patients, but it would definitely have an effect on the statistical analysis because you're now comparing groups of different sizes. They talk about needing to recruit somewhere around 450 patients. And obviously one of the problems that we come to through the paper is that unfortunately they weren't able to achieve that. But they'd done a power calculation. And again, there was a question for me within their power calculation as to why they chose a one-sided power calculation. My understanding from my reading, and again, I'd be interested if other people have got more knowledge on this, is that with a one-sided calculation, you may get away with recruiting fewer patients. They did specify what they thought the change in outcomes would be. They thought that the proportion of patients improving on remdesivir would be 1.4 times the number improving on placebo. That proportion would represent the change in speed of recovery. Um, yes, so thank you for that, Andy. I was just saying that Laura's asked the same question about the two-to-one allocation ratio. I think, as you've correctly said, the authors haven't indicated the rationale for that ratio. We do know that in RCTs, usually tend to go for a one-to-one allocation ratio. My assumption, and just as Albus pointed out, was that this was to maximize the chances of getting good number of people treated. But also, this was considered to be a safety assessment during the trial. And so this gives you an opportunity to be able to pick up on potential adverse events that would otherwise have been missed with a one-to-one ratio. So uh, uneven treatment allocations tend to be used in early phase studies and are looking at drug safety and efficacy. And I think that was one of the parameters that the study authors were interested in. Next up, were the groups similar at the start of the trial? And I think with this one, Andy and I may may have a bit of difference in opinions, but I'll let Andy go first. Okay, so I put in that, I think from the researcher's perspective, clearly they believed so as they entered the trial. They tried to recruit similar proportions of patients into each group with different severities at the start, stratification for oxygen therapy. And I can see Ina's commented on Hannah's question and asking that same question. And I think that's so that you don't end up with more severe patients in one arm just by chance. They allowed for a number of other therapies to be used, which could be influencing outcome. And there were 
overall similar proportions in each side of the treatment arms. They took into account viral load and we need to recognize the one of the things about the viral tests that we're doing are that they're not measuring active virus, they're measuring the presence of RNA. And again, I think that's been in the medical press in the last week or two, pointing out that presence of RNA doesn't always equate to active infection. They did note some differences in the post-hope review of a number of parameters and there was some rationale given for that and I wonder if that's where Hugo is going to take comments in a moment. They did notice some imbalances at enrolment in terms of sex distribution. There were more negative markers in the remdesivir. There were a slightly greater proportion of males with comorbidities. And they also pointed out that without saying how significant the difference was, there were more patients in the control group who were earlier in the course of the disease, I believe. They obviously included an assessment of patients who had started treatment within 10 days as opposed to over 10 days later on. And I'll come back to that. But I'd be interested in Hugo's sort of further thoughts on that. So I think they they had mixed success. I think at the end of the study, I think there were more differences between the groups apparent than perhaps were obvious to them at the start of the study. Yes. So I think that's where uh, my approach was from. I don't think that these groups were similar from the start of the trial. There are definitely differences in proportions of the patients who had comorbidities. You had those in the interventional group having more comorbidities than those in the control arm. And although the authors haven't used any statistical methods to show us if this difference in proportions was significant. As Andy's also noted, there was a difference in sex distribution as well. Ended up seeing that those who were recruited into the interventional arm appear to have had worse work of breathing in terms of their respiratory rate being above 24. And you definitely had um, patients in the placebo group being enrolled much later in the course of the disease compared to those in the interventional arm. And I think this obviously starts to introduce bias when it comes to analyzing any sort of data that's coming out of of the study. So I think it just needs to be held in mind when you're interpreting the study results. So that, that was my perspective. So aside from the allocated treatment, were groups treated equally? I think Andy's um, already alluded to that, that although patients were allowed to have alternative treatments like the lopinavir, ritonavir, and corticosteroids, you can see on table one that there was an even distribution between the interventional group and placebo group and for patients receiving additional therapies. So I would say that even the follow-up period and assessment found that both arms were treated the same. And so I would say yes and for that section. I don't know if anyone has any questions about that or any difference of opinion. No, I, I agreed with that, Hugo. Um, it seemed that they were very similar. Uh, one comment they made about was, was the possibility of emergency and masking of the drug, but it wasn't commented on as to whether they actually did that at any point. So um, next question is, were all patients who entered the trial accounted for and were they analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? I think the authors have given a very good 
flow diagram. I think if you look at figure one, which is a trial profile of meeting the eligibility criteria, and for those who ended up being enrolled and assigned to the different arms of the study, an intention to treat process was used, which means that all patients who ended up receiving the interventional drug or the placebo were accounted for um, during data analysis. I think that was made very clear in the paper, and I had no queries about that. I agreed with that, Hugo. They subsequently analysed both on intention to treat and by planned protocol, and there was no major difference. It didn't push it over a significance line one way or the other, so they've, they've looked at it both ways. Fortunately, their numbers were small for patients who didn't complete the study. I'm just looking at the questions on the side. James Slack had commented about the groups talk about therapy at baseline, but did miss out on whether they had it during the whole 10-day course. I guess that's for the previous question about were groups treated equally. A point uh, Duke's made, Duke Raison, points out that usually there's a p-value column or confidence interval which might indicate a significant difference in baseline characteristics and for some reason they didn't incorporate that into this. So next question was looking at whether the patients and the clinicians were appropriately blinded to the treatment arms and that were being received. And I say yes, that this was a very well-designed and double-blind randomized controlled trial. Andy said, I think there were appropriate measures put in place for emergency and masking if it was required, but I don't believe that any patient required this process to be used. But yes, this was a double-blind trial. So, I think before we discuss the study results, I'd just like to go back to the study design. Um, and I think Andy's already mentioned this. Based on the power anticipated for the calculated sample size was about 450 patients. But as you can see, at the end of the day, they only re managed to recruit about half of that. And obviously, this would be quite an underpowered study. I think they were working with a potential power of 80%, and but then in post hoc analysis, they found that it ended up being a power of 58%. So I think when we're interpreting our study results, we should just keep that in mind. When we look at the treatment effect, we have to look at what modality was used to estimate effect size. And in this situation, they've used hazard ratio, which in the slides that Andy has made available for further reading, explains what exactly a hazard ratio is. Anything above one should in this situation be expressing a positive outcome whereas anything below one is a negative outcome. And um, anything that is one or straddles one is uh, within the no effect zone. I think they found that the hazard ratio for time to clinical improvement was 1.23 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.87 to 1.75, and I'm just wondering what people thought, how would they interpret it?
it feels to me as though they are trying to come up with figures that get closer and closer to that lower confidence interval being above one and don't make it. They've got a trend, as people often talk about, that is pointing towards some effect. But as Duke's made the point, they're showing no effect when there might be a real effect. And that's a function of the underpowered nature of the study, which they, they realise. I know I have my opinions, but I'm wondering if everyone else feels that these were appropriate measures for this study. We talked about as a secondary outcome, looking at the proportions of patients in each category of the six-point scale at day seven, day 14, and day 28. And I know I struggled to understand what the interpretation of that outcome would mean exactly. They did retrospectively if they had said it was only a one point change in their scale that was indicative of improvement would that have actually shown a significant improvement and even there it didn't quite have confidence intervals that took it above one so it's still leaving you uncertain we end up not knowing whether there's an effect or not really. you pointed out Andy there was quite a lot of post-hoc analysis I started to wonder if they were data fishing at the end of the day trying to find something that was actually significant. But yes, as you've rightly said, they did try to analyze for just a one-point change on the six-point scale and found that still that wasn't significant. But what I was actually interested in was the analysis of the viral RNA in the respiratory swabs and time to clearance, which showed that there wasn't really any difference in the curves as to the viral load over time in the study between the interventional group and the control group, although the authors describe a slightly steeper decline with using remdesivir compared to the controls. I don't know if anyone had any opinions about that. I think one of the things that is coming through from other sources of information about COVID is that early intervention almost before you know you've got it and certainly that seems to be something that's coming through in our thinking about children that this may just have been too wide a net to answer the question of what where remdesivir might be helpful. They may be missing the boat in terms of being able to affect viral replication it may be that actually the debris is going to be there and the debris isn't, isn't, is irrelevant. It's still not telling you about the total viral load, although you would imply something about the number of copies of the RNA per patient not changing as perhaps having some value. The topic is changing so quickly. I think they would redesign their entry criteria if they were starting the study again, or even on that basis. That's what I was thinking of in terms of the patients that were actually ended up being recruited into this study. As you can see, most of them fell into the midpoint on the ordinal scale, mainly requiring just supplemental oxygen. And I guess, apart from the fact that the, power, the study was underpowered, asking whether it's actually looking at the right patient population that would benefit from remdesivir, we have an underrepresentation of, I guess, the more critical end of the spectrum, those requiring ECMO or invasive ventilation, and then those at the earlier end of the disease process who are not requiring oxygen. 
and it'll be interesting to see in future studies if there's an impact on time to clinical improvement or in reduction in viral load in the other groups as well. I think there's a similar study going on in the UK, but looking at patients with moderate COVID M19 as compared to looking at the severe um, end of the spectrum. I'd also be interested to see what comes out of the study in the US because I know they hinted at preliminary results that there is a significant benefit from using remdesivir, but we've actually not seen any figures published just yet, and I don't think it's been peer-reviewed. There was some comment on the podcast this week in virology that I was hearing from yesterday. They are anticipating that study's publication very shortly. You're At right. the end of the day, I guess the question is, do we feel that this was an appropriate study um, to answer the particular question that it was trying to, to address? Do we think it was adequately designed um, and do we think it's actually relevant to our current clinical practice? And I'd like to see what the general opinion is from anyone who's um, signed in. While people are sort of thinking and typing, my take on on the paper was that it wasn't going to be particularly helpful dealing with children because we haven't been seeing it affecting children. It would be interesting to see the results from the American study and other studies to try and see what impact there might be at earlier stages of treatment. I can see from the side here, somebody asked, saying the question, which is a point I made, that I think it's really important to publish papers like this because they can then go into meta-analyses and we know without incomplete or unhelpful appearing randomised controlled studies being published, you get a, a publication bias in subsequent meta-analyses. So it's really important that this data is out there and is accessible to, to other groups to look at as well. So Andy, it's interesting you say that it's not necessarily applicable to our population as um, paediatricians because I think the other day I just read guidance that was offered by one of the paediatric associations in the US which has recommended that remdesivir be used for any pediatric patient that is admitted to hospital with confirmed COVID-19. And this is without them having any significant evidence base to guide that decision. So I think this just goes back to what we were trying to highlight with the critical appraisal bit, that we need to be informed appropriately about the evidence that's out there before we start offering any guidance on controlled use of certain treatments or unproven use of certain treatments. I think it's coming through in some of the comments that, you know, can see it being used. Uh, query, is it being used at Great Ormond Street? I would hope if it is being used in paediatrics, it's as part of a study. I think Hannah's raised the point, would it be useful in the multi-system inflammatory disease? And given that that seems to come several weeks after probably asymptomatic infection, again, you would question whether using an antiviral drug at that stage would be useful if you could give it to everybody, could you use something like this prophylactically? It doesn't seem likely because it's an intravenous drug from what I can see. It would be really hard to target a group. 
you might start to identify subgroups where there are greater risk factors who you wish to consider this or, or to screen and to use it at the earliest stage of positivity. But realistically, with our screening process at the moment, I think it's hard to see how we would use this logically, if I can put it that way. Right. So I think that was a very useful session and we've been able to adequately go through uh, what I think is a seminal paper in the battle against COVID-19, at least offering some preliminary details on the possible effects of remdesivir. We've discussed the strengths of the studies, including its approach in terms of its design um, and its recruitment, and also highlighted its limitations. Most importantly, the fact that this was quite an underpowered study that may have had an impact on the study findings. And, and although they haven't found a significant effect of using remdesivir in adults with severe COVID-19 infection, this shouldn't prevent us from carrying out more extensive, larger sample size studies to properly look into this. So I'd like to thank everyone for participating in this pilot session. And um, hopefully with the next one, we'd have sorted out all the logistical kinks. And I hope everyone found this to be valuable. Okay, thank you, Ugo. That's been really useful. And I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to it. I'm just going to say a few words about our plans moving forward. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be organising future journal clubs, hopefully on a monthly basis. The aim each month will be to link a how-to section about reading a particular aspect of the medical literature with analysis of an individual article. We aim for sessions to be run by trainees with support from paediatricians and other healthcare and allied professionals with expertise in this area. Each session will include an audio podcast plus supporting presentations and other resources. We will provide further information on how to access resources in future episodes. So for now, I'm going to sign off and hope everybody remains safe and well and look forward to welcoming you back to listen to future episodes.